Everyone, America Mal in the Metaverse with a sniffly Paul Schulte today. Paul, you've got uh, Spanish allergies. Yes, yes. Not the Spanish flu, just Spanish allergies. There, yeah. there you go, mate. I have to. St- we have to start off with this. What do we think about Elon Musk putting in a bid for Twitter? Somebody was saying, do we have to allow Elon Musk to live rent-free in our minds on his endless antics and weird activity? Is this just another stunt for him to get attention? I have no idea. I don't know why he's doing what he's doing. I have no idea. And I don't think he does either. I think it's publicity stuff. I'm very cynical about. But it's the high. He's not alone in terms of really rich dudes buying media outlets, right? Whether it's Jeff Bezos in the Washington in the Washington Post. I mean, who bought uh, Time Magazine? I can't recall. Salesforce founder, gone blank, gone blank. Hugh uh, uh, Reid Hoffman. But mate, the big news I think this week is, oh sorry, the big question of this week is, have we reached peak inflation? That is the only thing that people are speaking about currently. Put it this way: if that is the case, then the S and P is probably up up five percent in a week or so. Front end of the U.S. rate curve is recalibrating. Have we seen peak inflation? Well, there was that, that idiotic thing of the year-on-year effect, but let's not forget that the level matters as well, right? So we've had a very big increase. And even if we get to like 3% next year, the level of inflation is really going to eat into real incomes, right? And so we're already seeing that in the UK, that real incomes have fallen the most in like 25 years. And in order for us to, to reverse this, obviously, right, you need deflation. And that is absolutely positively not coming. I was looking at the two year, 10 year curve and you know, it's interesting. If you go back and you look at the month-to-month activity of the 210 versus the equity market, the two-year, 10-year spread tends to reverse going into a recession. So I think the more important question is... Because, is when because it steepens going into recession. It steepens as we go into recession, right? So, so in other words, that, that it doesn't steepen after the recession ends. It steepens as we go into it. And so I think the more important question is not has inflation peaked, but when, what quarter does the recession hit? Hmm. I think that's really the key question because that, then we're going to see a, a reversal in equities and in bonds. Yeah, it's, and, a, yeah. it's an interesting dynamic because I think that there is – we don't, I don't have a lot of convers. I'm not having a lot of conversations currently about growth trajectory. I'm having a lot of conversations about the inflation outlook. Have we reached peak inflation? That's the, the pricing side of things. I'm having conversations, frankly, which are annoying conversations. Well, what do you think the pro- what's the probability of recession by here? And, and you're sitting there, and guys, to listeners out there, anyone who answers that question is pulling it out of their arms, is the short answer, because we, we as strategists do this all the time. I say, there's a 75% chance of a recession by Q4 of this year, right? They, these are made-up numbers. These are, these are more designed to be sort of um, expressions of confidence in the outcome versus probabilistic event. Yep. Well, what I'm not having with clients, right, is conversations about global growth, right? Now, Chinese growth, Chinese growth is poor right now, and we know the reasons why, right? We know we, mm-hmm. we know the reasons why, right? But you know, what we're not talking about in a lot of ways is that US growth currently absolutely is, is, is really slow, is really sluggish. And it goes back to this point that people talk about nominal versus, nominal versus real, 
But the nominal growth that we are seeing is 100% basically, sorry, apart from about a percent or maybe 2% in Q in Q2, which would be real growth, everything else is prices. So we've got not, you know, close to 9% nominal growth when all of that is pricing increases. And that's not a healthy economy by any stretch of the imagination. Indeed, indeed, indeed. But it is fulfilling the secret desire of the Fed to get inflation for two reasons. One is to burn away the debt, and two is to increase tax revenue. And 9% inflation really, 9% growth, 7% inflation really uh, does the trick on both of those. Mm. So in fact, we are seeing our our debt level get burned away in the US. Uh, I think it'll probably go down by like five points by the end of the year. That's how you know influential inflation is. And tax revenues are really gonna go up a lot because of, of, of inflation. Obviously taxation is a nominal issue, right? And so, so in that sense, the Fed has succeeded. But the social security uh, side of things, but payments go up a lot as well. Oh, I know, but no way. <laughs> Well, that's the dirty secret of government is we're going to give you a whole 2.1%, you know, increase in your cost of living when we know that the cost of living is going up by six or seven. So it's the same thing with nominal wages, nominal wages and social security, you know, are two sides of the same coin, right? In both cases, workers and retirees are getting hit by inflation because there's no way that wages or social security benefits can go up in line with inflation. Forget it. And, and so that, that's the dirty secret of inflation. It robs you of income without telling you. And it solves your sovereign problems of inadequate tax revenue and excessive debt. And well, so that's the dirty secret. And the other, the other side of that, of, that, of that decline in debt-to-GDP ratios, right, is the notion that the reason I think there's an eventual recession, this is, and this has nothing to do with Fed tightening, when I, when I thought the Fed would raise by 100 basis points this time last year throughout the cycle versus the 350 that is currently still priced, my idea of what caused the recession was still the same thing, and that's the fiscal compression. This goes back to the core premise of mm-hmm. what we saw in the pandemic, where if you take your fiscal deficit from 6% of GDP to 16% of GDP to plug a lost output generated by a pandemic, and then you take that, that 16% down to 6% again, um, they give it, they take it away, right? And that is that's your reason for me that the recession that the recession was inevitable probably by mid twenty twenty three is that Republican controlled Senate means nothing gets done. So, Paul, sorry, correct me if I'm wrong. We were meant to have a three trillion dollar stimulus by now, weren't we, Mr. Man? Well, Mr. yeah, uh, Senator Manchin put, put, the, put, the, put the put the brakes on that. Um, yeah, Joe Manchin, President Joe Manchin, put the brakes on that exactly. Yeah. The country is being run by from Wheeling, West Virginia. Yeah, yeah. And, and what you've seen is this, and so what you've seen is, I'd argue, and the, and the concern about the recession coming earlier than all of this is because the fiscal compression has happened before this, right? You've got the Dem- the Democrats control all three houses, all you know, control you know, Senate, Senate, House, and the White House. They should have carte blanche to do whatever the hell they want, right? And they're getting nothing done. And this will be under, under, and this is one of the great misconceptions about, about Republicans and Democrats for the last five decades have actually run tighter, tighter fiscal policy than what the Demo- Republicans have. But this will be one of the biggest contractions in the fiscal deficit under any government in history is this, this, current, this current fiscal year. And it's based on the fact that Biden has not been able to get anything done. Right? That's your recession. That's your recession policy. 
Yeah. And not only that, but of course, what you're doing is you are having a contraction in fiscal side. You're having obviously a contraction in the monetary side. Arguably, you're having a contraction in the tax side because taxes are going up. Right. And if the dollar goes, goes, stays strong, you're going to have a, a contraction in trade, right? A, a weaker dollar is needed to stimulate trade. And so if you have a strong dollar, you have contractionary trade. And then we're talking about, you're talking about contractionary fiscal. We have contractionary uh, monetary and we have contractionary tax policy. And that's not a good place to be for equities. I think that the, the rally happened. Great. God bless you. A lot of people had a chance to get out of a lot of these positions that are that have lost 50, 60, 70 percent. And I think as we move into May and the summer, I just think we're in, tr- we're in trouble for all the things that we're talking about, because we have a quadruple contraction happening in the U.S. and no one's talking about it. And, and it's not just a, and it's obviously not just a U.S. problem. Right. Because, again, we, we often lose sight of the fact because Europe is, you know, an, a, a boring, a boring economic block in terms of its long term growth rates. The, the EU is the world's biggest economic block. Um, it is going to go into recession in all likelihood. It's hard to see how it's, avo- how it's avoided by, by Q4 of this year just due to elevated gas prices. Alluded to the cost of the cost of living increase in the in the UK, which is you know, un, un, almost unprecedented in terms of the cost increase. You're seeing the same the same cost of increase in in Spain. You're seeing it in Germany. You're seeing it in France. I think it's pretty. Yep. Yep. Marine Le Pen is Marine. Le, look, um, uh, Macron is going to get back in power, and that's and that's he's going to win again. But Jesus, probably closer than they wanted, isn't it? And Marine, look, Marine is Marine Le Pen is still kicking around and. Look, it's hard to argue that the, the that inflation is one of the reasons why. You know, by the way, given given the fact there are photos all around the internet of her hanging out with Putin, and she's still within four points of, of Macron and all of this, that's a hundred percent because of the cost of living adjustment. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. Yep. So I agree. And China continues to struggle. And I think we talked about this a little bit last week. I've asked myself this question for 15 years, and I still have no answer to this, of whether Chinese bureaucrats are the smartest people in the room or the dumbest people in the room. And I just don't know. And for every high-speed railway um, you know, and, and great infrastructure project that you see throughout China, there is the handling of the bursting of the equity bubble in 20, in 2014, 2015, the revaluation of the renminbi in September of August in 2015. There is what we're seeing with the handling of COVID, which is just, just you know, globally appalling how this has been handled. I spoke to another. I spoke to another family. Another. another I know another family is leaving Hong Kong. Which you know, you said one. It was one percent in January. It was also one percent in February and one percent in March as well. So Hong yeah, Kong has yeah, lost three yeah. percent of, of its population has left in in ninety days. And you wait until uh, you wait till spring when all the schools finish. I mean, the the reason uh, people who the people who are have not left, who have an intention to leave, are going to leave when their children finish school in May. And so there's going to be another big exodus in June and July, August. Yet again, clients at my end are starting to talk about the prospect of Chinese stimulus. And there is one if there is one thing that that the so-called smart money world has gotten wrong in the last six years. It's predicting Chinese monetary and fiscal stimulus, right? We finally have to yeah, consider yeah. the Chinese. They don't turn the taps on like they did in 2000, 2011. It just doesn't happen anymore. And even with yeah. even with COVID and everything that we have seen, we have seen monetary policy and fiscal policy that has been 
tinkered with and nothing more, right? Has it been eight years since the Chinese changed interest rate policy? Obviously, they've played the triple R requirements and all this stuff. When's the last time they Yeah, the triple R requirement. I, I think what we're looking at as a change in policy right about now is, is I think what, what I think there is going to be a very big change in policy, and that's going to be the triple R. The triple R will stop being used. And I think I think China's going to go into quantitative easing. I, I, I believe that. Look at interest rates right now. Interest rates in the U.S. are now higher than they are in China. This is a big deal. This is the first time in a very, very long time that you're getting a better return in U.S. than you are in China. And, and so this is telling you that there's a, a really aggravated downward pressure on rates because of the excessive debt levels in China. That, that you know, China has been trying to de deal with this deleveraging for eight, nine years. China has been deleveraging the economy. I'd argue they've done a reasonably good job. Right. I think they've done a really good job of deleveraging without causing uh, an implosion in the real estate market. I, I looked. I worked for a Chinese bank. I've been looking at China since 1992. I think they uh, are doing a very good job on the monetary side in the People's Bank of China and in the super regulatory structure of the PBOC. Now, the Ministry of Health and this COVID thing, that's a different story. I think it's appalling what's going on. Look at what happened in Singapore and in America and in Sweden and Italy and Spain, the initial phases of this whole thing were a, a catastrophe. New Zealand became a hermit kingdom, right? New Zealand shut down for two years. Nobody was allowed in to New Zealand, right? I mean, this is what China's doing. Now it's China's turn, right? So I was talking to a friend today, one of my dear friends who just was visiting me here, and she and I were great friends in Hong Kong, and she lived in Hong Kong for 10 years. And What's happening there is that we're seeing a, a mass exodus inside of Hong Kong. And in the case of China, COVID never got there, right? And now COVID is coming because this is an extremely contagious, much more contagious form of anything we've had before. But it's also a, a non-starter uh, in terms of, 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 of seriousness. The problem is, Paul, is that we're looking at, think of 1% the population of China that is over 75 years old and unvaccinated and has all these different co-occurring disorders is something like 2 million. So we are looking at death rates that are staggering just because of China's size, yeah. even if a, a tiny proportion of the old people who are unvaccinated and who have health problems could be victims of this COVID. Now, by the way, most old people, guess what they die of? They die of pneumonia or they die of the flu. This is how old people tend to die, right? And so, so China's dealing with a number that could be catastrophically high. And so the number I read today was that 300, uh, Nikkei Weekly today published a number that 330 million people in China are under some form of lockdown, right? So a quarter of the country. A quarter of the country is in some form of lockdown. And of course, Shanghai is 20 million, right? That, that's just 20 million off the bat. And they're under a total and complete lockdown uh, right now. But Li Keqiang, you know, came out today and said, basically, look at uh, provincial governors accommodate COVID in line with growth expectations, right? So now they're talking out of both sides of their mouth, which is what, you know, COVID regulators were doing and for two years <laughs> all over the world yeah. and driving everybody, driving everybody crazy. What we're saying here is that Again, I would really strongly urge all retail investors, institutional investors, pay attention to the first 90 days of the yield curve, because I predict that part of that will turn negative sooner rather than later. And if it does, QE automatically starts again, right? 
you're going to pull money out in order to get the price of money above zero, because any price of money below zero destroys the banking system. And, and the Fed knows that. And the Fed is hyper vigilant about that issue. That, I would say, is the number one driving policy force of the Fed. No negative rates. Well, the trouble that's so rates are negative. It's, it's more difficult now that they've raised rates by 25 basis points for that to happen. Well, that's the problem, right? Now, I think, but is it, equally, is it equally as difficult if rates go to, cash rates are 25 basis points, so if, if overall rates go to 15 basis points, is that still the same sort of result? Obviously, it's not devastating. It's obviously not negative carry for, you know, deposits at the, at the Fed, but is that still the same sort of precursor to an eventual easing if, cash rates go below, uh, sorry, right, if, say short overnight rates go below cash rates? Yeah, that's a good point. I think it'll cause the Fed to pause. I think it'll cause them to have some sensitive, prickly internal discussions. The people who understand monetary policy will be like, uh-oh, this is what we told you might happen. And now we've got to pay really strict attention to this. And if it goes below 10 or 5, we need to have another conversation here. And we need to find, we need to find a conversation uh, we, we need to find a new narrative that's going to allow people to swallow <laughs> the need for quantitative easing if rates go anywhere close to zero, if three months keeps on jack- getting jacked up. In other words, the whole yield curve sinks. Yep. I think so, the whole yield curve is going to sink. That's what, I, that's what I predict. Exactly because of what, everything you're saying in the last seven minutes or eight minutes. Yeah. So I'd say that I, I would say the following. So I think that you alleviate some of those problems. It's always been one of the terrible arguments about why people raise rates, because you need to have ammunition for the next recession, right? Which is always just a terrible argument of why you need it, why people raise rates. Well, let's we'll look again. We got, we're going to get 50 at the main meeting, right? So that'll take us to a lower bound of 75 basis points, which probably eradicates your scenario for a while. But again, I, I hear you on the problem of it being technically a very, a very big problem, if overnight rates go below cash rates for, you know, by, by an appreciable, you know, 10 basis points or more. With all of these currencies sinking, with the yen sinking, with the, you know, CNY under pressure, with a lot of other emerging markets, uh, currencies under pressure because of inflation, right? The higher your inflation goes, the lower your currency has to go, yep. um, right? And the inflation differential is often that difference in currency. And we all know that, that places like Southeast Asia, Latin America, Southern Europe have always, they're always inflation headquarters, and the U.S. will tend to beat them with lower inflation rates, even if the U.S. rate is high. Therefore, if the dollar continues to be sideways to strong, Paul, this is critically important. We have tightening trade policy, we have tightening monetary policy, tightening fiscal policy, and tightening tax policy. That is a making for a disaster, and nobody is talking about this. Because yep. we're talking about four different policy measures. Those four policy measures make capital markets prices. Yeah, yeah. I think, the obviously, remember is something which, in the greater scheme of things, it's done very little, and that which is just further confirmation that looking at the the, the price of the remember is a little pointless because it is one of the it is the most orchestrated currency on the on the face of on the face of the earth. But again, if you've got if you've got U.S. rates higher than Ch- than Chinese rates for the first time in years, years it's, it's been that long, right? Is that a precursor for capital outflow out of China? Is that a precursor for some no, I, 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 capital flight? But is it a precursor for? outflows. No, I think that's rubbish. I think that's a rubbish argument. You and I have seen that in the last few days coming out of a lot of different avenues of research. I think that's rubbish because 
on top of the FX rate being one of the most orchestrated in the world, the interest rate yield curve of China is one of the most orchestrated in the world. So I, I just don't buy it that suddenly you're going to have these flip-flopping yield curves in China. I think that's just nonsense. And and capital flight, it's 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 hard to get capital flight. Right? People go to jail for trying to engage in capital flight in China. So it's very difficult. But that's goes back. I used to I I've got into so many arguments. I've been wrong about a lot of things in the last couple of years. This one I got right. I got into so many arguments with people about how China could never ban Bitcoin. And my argument was really simple. It goes against, it circumvents policy. China doesn't allow something to circumvent policy, right? Because again, yeah. how, is, how is capital readily escaping China? In the, crypto, in the crypto markets. Really straightforward thing to, straightforward way to circumvent capital controls or, or tight or a closed capital account. No wonder it happened, right? And that's it's hardly it's hardly surprising. And I think, mate, give me a little update. Give me a little crypto update. We haven't talked about this in a while. What are you what are you seeing in what are you seeing in crypto markets? Is there anything interesting? India's India's obviously yeah. I, I think to push on back on things. Uh, yeah, I think that there has been a clear change in the narrative that away from crypto as a means of exchange, right? Just exactly what you just were talking about to crypto as a as a store of value in the world of NFTs and in the metaverse. And that is hogging all of the oxygen in the room now. From what I have seen, and I sent the note out to clients several weeks ago that the NFT metaverse scene has just been completely hijacked by bad money that is basically criminal mafia money. And it's just runaway corruption syndicates pump priming, pump and dump schemes, some of the, the, the major holders of a lot of the crypto who are engaging, who are behaving like central banks, essentially, which is the total betrayal of what you know Bitcoin was intended to be. And so I, I, I think the metaverse NFT discussion is, is, is now taking all of the oxygen in the room. It is legitimate. The NFT metaverse argument now in 2022 is the, the, the internet argument in 2000, 2001, the equity market, you know, it peaked and then it blew up and, and then everyone said, wait a minute, the internet's free. So why are we paying all of these meteoric valuations for these companies and the companies all fell 80%. Same thing is happening now. Wait a minute, this metaverse, oh, it's free and anybody can have one. And they're just like websites and there's going to be a universe of metaverse locations. It's not just going to be Facebook having one. And so I think the exact same argument is happening now as happened in 2001 when people woke up from the digital pixie dust that was being thrown in our eyes back then. And so I think that the stocks that represented the promise of the universe have all completely fallen apart. Well, Roblox, Roblox is a great example of that, right? Roblox. Roblox, all of these ones, especially the ones that were held by, guess who? You know, our, 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 our friend Kathy. Well, not just Kathy Woods, but also Hill House, who hold, held a lot of the um, Asian ones, yeah. right? So Hill House held all the Chinese ones, all the Singapore ones, and they were forced liquidators. And so Kathy Woods will, you know, be thrown out with the with the, the fire, the ashes of in the ash heap of history, and Hill House will be in the ash heap of history. And now going forward, the question is, is there bottom fishing appropriate here in a lot of these stocks? And I sent you the list. For God's sake, I got three pages of stuff that was down between 60 and 90. This is hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap, yep. right? And, and, and so, so, so the question is, are these bottom fishing expeditions now? I doubt it because 
Why? Because all the people who are talking about crypto and the, the, the metaverse and the NFT, they are all in all these stocks. These are the Robin Hood people. These are the Robin Hood retail Tales, people. Did you hear Peter Thiel's rant at uh, the Miami Bitcoin conference? What did he call um, Warren Buffett a psychotic octogenarian or something like that? <laughs> it was, uh, it literally, yeah, I mean, well, Teal was just on a rant in all this stuff. And so, but, but just on this, on that point though, about, you know, and again, it goes back the, the laws of supply and demand are undefeated, right? And you, know, you, you and I talked about property in the metaverse before and the like. And, you know, if there are unlimited, if there are unlimited universes, metaverses to be part of, isn't the inherent value of any property in any one of those metaverses negligible because of unlimited supply potential? Well, yeah, I mean, there is a sense of, well, I mean, look at Hong Kong. Hong Kong's supply is dictated by reclamation, right? And 50-story buildings. But value of property is always, always, always going to be location, location, location. Right, I can build a hundred thousand homes out in new territories, or I can build a hundred thousand homes in northern Arizona, but that doesn't—that's not going to get me anywhere, right? And location is going to matter in the metaverse, right? Because if you're around a guy or a woman who can create a a lot of a lot of eyeballs through the social network, Justin Bieber is going to have a great neighborhood, right? right? Snoop, 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 Lil Nas. Tickets to a Snoop right. concert with the equivalent of $2,000 a pop. Sold thousands. Right. Snoop, Snoop Dogg's going to have a hugely profitable neighborhood. The Kardashians are going to have a hugely pop, popular neighborhood in the metaverse. So this is not going to go away. By the way, let me just give you a couple of examples here on, on this collapse. Robinhood, down 86 from the top. Lemonade, Darling, InsureTech, down 82. Peloton, down 79, right? Lending Tree down 70. Zillow, 70. Open Door, 70. 23andMe, 70. On and on. Roblox is down 66, right? And so this just goes on and on of, of dozens of companies like this. And so, so the, the, the narrative the, the now is, do I buy these? And I just think it's too soon. And that's because like in 2001, NASDAQ took 10 years to get back to its old high, but it did. Yep. NASDAQ took a long time led, to get led, back to 5,000. Led, led by different stocks. Leadership will change. I agree. Yep. Leadership's going to change. And, and that's what I've been saying to my clients is, and this is what happens during inflation. Inflation causes us to buy things we need. We, don't, we, we no longer buy things we want. We don't buy Peloton during inflation. Guess what we buy? We buy bicycles. <laughs> you know, right? Because bicycles are cheap. Right. Yes. And so looking at the things that of, of what we need versus what we want and the things we need also have something else to them. The things we need are physical. And that reinforces this idea that you buy physical stuff during inflation and you veer away from the stuff that was all the rage in the growth tech world for seven years. Right. And so I think I think that I think the leadership's going to change. Absolutely right. And I think every time these stocks rally we're just going to get a sell-off because people are going to be trying to exit these positions. Right. So I think it's too okay. soon. Okay, so let's get, you, let's get everyone out of here on this. What, what do you need to see to buy these companies again in the aggregate? And what, would, what are the first companies from a fundamental business model standpoint are the first companies that you own from, from that space? 
Well, I, I think I think we're getting back to like the fundamentals that you and I did, you know, 20 years ago. And that's basically technicals, right? Number one, huge liquidation uh, crescendo event of massive volume of people getting out, right? Number two, we need a change in policy of one of the four policy measures I mentioned to be ex expansionary. We need one of those to change, right? Number three, and I talked to one of my great clients in Florida, and he's, he's, a, he's a long time investor. He has his own hedge fund. He was at Fidelity forever. He was like the number three guy at Tiger. Cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. I'm looking for what is going to give me free cash flow. I want that. I want access to free cash flow. I don't want people who are borrowing to grow. I don't want people who are losing money hand over fist every quarter. Forget it. That's over. I want free positive cash flows in the two or three billion dollar range. And then I want to have a stock price that's going to be a multiple of those cash flows. Otherwise, I'm not interested. We're getting back to basics, physical policy, expansionary policy, and cash flows. And we veered away from that for the last, arguably, 10 years. We have to call this episode the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which is tighter tax, tighter trade, tighter fiscal, tighter monetary. If I think about which one of those is going to change first, I mean, the dollar's the, the logical one. Oh, sorry, the dollar's the logical one that can quickly change, right? I don't know if I can give you a scenario Newton, why it changes, because it's going to happen before tax, because we're not getting changes in tax or fiscal for the next three years, you know, not until, not until we find out who's in charge in 2024. And on the tax side of things, well, that's an inflation argument effectively, isn't it? The Fed could change policy if they can come up with a new narrative that is uh, enough of a you know spin uh, to say it's Putin's fault, right? You have to blame you have to blame the neighbor for the fire in the neighborhood. Growth, 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 will, drag, yeah. growth will drag down prices. That that will mm -hmm. accelerate mm -hmm. inflation. China's COVID response is worse than we thought. You, you know they always cook something up to justify QE, and they will again. Right. What are you doing this week, my friend? What's going on? Well, Jesus is going to die tomorrow, and then he's coming oh, out of his tomb on Sunday. Yeah, and so shame on you for not knowing this. And so he and dies he at Catholic 3 o'clock. Yes, and so I'm going to um, be here doing Easter things. All Did of my interns are coming to Barcelona. There's a very big game. Munich and Barcelona are playing. Oh, very good. There's, very a, good. there's a huge, huge event in uh, Barcelona this weekend. The streets are packed with people in white shirts, drunken Germans. And drunken yeah. Spanish people are going to go at it for the weekend. What could possibly go wrong? What could go wrong? Yeah. Everyone have a great week. Judas, thank you for providing us with these next three days off. We, you don't get enough credit for it. Paul, have a wonderful that time. That is very naughty. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. <laughs> That's very naughty. Okay, see you. Bye.